to join us in worship this morning and singing together in the honor of the Lord. If you have your Bibles, I encourage you to take them and open with me this morning to the book of Hananiah, Hananiah chapter 28, if you would. What? I seem to have a pause here. I'm sorry, not, not, not Hananiah. Um, I really want you to turn to, you know, Never mind, we won't even worry about that. It doesn't look like it's going to work for me, no matter. I, I, I'm sorry, I've read it. it's Shemaiah. Turn to chapter to the book of Shemaiah, chapter 1, if you would. And I get that. I think it's 473 in your Bible. Uh, let's look that up. Well, those are real Old Testament prophets. Uh, their words are recorded in the Old Testament. I will give you one of those prophecies. Thus says the Lord of hosts, the God of Israel, I have broken the yoke of the king of Babylon. That is Hananiah, the prophet who uh, spoke those words. Um, but you won't find them in Hananiah's book or Shemaiah's book, but you will find them in Jeremiah's book, in the book of Jeremiah, who recorded the words of these false prophets. Jeremiah had a very hard task, a difficult job to do. He uh, lived in those days just before the captivity that would take the people of God in the Old Testament and put them into captivity. Um, the enemy was at the gates. In fact, they had come through the gates and already taken some. And uh, it became obvious that his prophecies about that coming judgment of God was uh, going to happen. And, um, but then he told them that it was going to last for 70 years, that they would be carried away from their homeland for 70 years. That meant for them the rest of their life. And that, of course, was not a very popular thing. You want to get a large crowd, if you want a big following, if you want people to be excited about what you've got to say, it's generally a good idea to tell people that they themselves are great, tell them that the people they don't like are awful, and between those two things, you'll probably keep and hold a crowd for a time. Jeremiah had to tell them something else, that they were awful, that they were deserving of what they were about to get, that the judgment that was coming to them was one that, that had every right to be expected, and that when it came... Uh, it would be for a long time. Others arose, of course, to say, you know, Jeremiah has been right. We, we denied it for a long time, but here we are, and sure enough, um, the Babylonians are here. There's no doubt we can't beat them, and uh, they are going to take us into exile, but Jeremiah's not. It's, it's only going to be two years. It's going to be a short time. We'll be carried away, then we'll be carried back. That's what Hananiah was saying. Later, Shemaiah followed him, saying much the same thing. Of course, the fact of the matter is they were wrong. They were not true prophets of God. They were false prophets. The messages of Jeremiah, though it was hard, was actually life-giving. It's better to always know the truth than to believe a lie. And if you're going to be taken from your land, and it's going to be for 70 years, it's better to know that ahead of time and to conduct yourselves that way rather than always thinking, well, it's just a trip over and a trip back. And In fact, Jeremiah told him this truth. He said in Jeremiah 29, verse 5, Build houses and live in them when you get to that place of exile there in Babylon. Plant gardens, eat their produce, take wives, have sons and daughters. Take wives for your sons and give your daughters in marriage that they may bear sons and daughters. Multiply there, do not decrease. In other words, prosper as a people. And then he said, seek the welfare of that city where I have sent you into exile and pray to the Lord on its behalf for in its welfare you will find welfare. And indeed they did. Because they had this true word from God. This would mean life to the Jewish people. This would bring blessings and would save the whole groundwork for their final and eventual return. Now, people do not like to hear hard things. 
people like us, people like me, people like you, really prefer for someone to tell us things that will scratch our itching ears. Tell me what I want to hear. Tell me what I already eagerly believe. I like to think of myself as a very rational person. I can take all the data in, I can analyze it, and come out with an objective answer at the end. But if I'm honest about myself, very often what I think is rational is just rationalizing. And I think it's true for you too. We have to really be careful to make sure we don't just find ourselves thinking what we want to think, believing what we want to believe, so we can do what we want to do. We have to be careful we don't just look other people to tell us what we want to believe or give us permission to do what we already want to do. We need to hear from a dependable source, and that is the Lord himself. Well, Second Peter chapter 2, where we're at, started last week. We've come to the place where Peter is talking about false teachers, as there was in the days of Jeremiah throughout the whole of the Old Testament. So there's going to be, there were, and there will are today, false teachers in the church. This is not an easy chapter to preach or teach. If you're here today and you don't yet know Christ, you're considering the claims of the gospel, I think it's fair to lay it out to you plainly that there are voices out there who would claim to be Christians, who would claim to speak for the gospel, but many times they will come and you're not telling you the truth. And you need to hear the whole gospel. And I would tell my brothers and sisters in Christ that we who hunger the word, we need to be careful because there are folks who would, for their own profit, for their own agenda, would tell us things that are simply not true. They will worm their way into the church. As we looked at it last week in those first ten verses, verses, they will be destructive, they will be exploitive, they will be dishonest, and very often they will be immoral. Now, as we said last week, this topic of false teachers has its own dangers. We can camp out on it in a way that's not healthy. It's sort of similar to how we might think about the devil. The two great errors you can make as a Christian thinking about the devil is either you can become completely preoccupied with him, and so you see him around every corner, you're quick to blame him for everything, or you can do the opposite and you can ignore him and live as though he does not exist and you don't have to give him a thought. Both are errors. And the same way, that's the way we have to think about false prophets. We must not be so naive to imagine, well, there's no danger for us. There's no way that could come into my life or into my mind or into our church. On the other hand, we don't need to be constantly looking for falsity in everybody else, and particularly someone who's new or someone who doesn't understand everything just the way I understand it, and to immediately jump to the conclusion, well, they're probably a false teacher. The Bible is clear. There are some things that Christians are going to not agree about, that that we're never going to come to the same conclusion. Romans chapter 14 talks about the food sacrificed to idols and the way you celebrate certain holy days. Everybody's not going to have exactly the same opinion about those things. We're not going to always see eye to eye, and there's a place for that in the life of Christ. There are some errors and mistakes in theology that while they are troublesome and we have to be as careful to be uh, accurate as we can, but there are some that are less serious than others. Just because you disagree with someone does not mean that you automatically look at them and say, ah, another false teacher. But we also have to acknowledge this morning that to be a faithful, biblical Christian, we must recognize that there is indeed a group of people, a category of people, who are not just well-intentioned but mistaken on, on a point or two, but in fact are false teachers with a motive that is deadly. Peter speaks very directly about these false teachers. He's already started. We covered a bit of this ground last week. But if you thought what he had to say last week was um, tough and interesting, well, from verse 10 onward, he takes the gloves off, and it gets a lot rougher. The truth is, Peter gets ugly. 
I mean, ugly. Animal, ugly. He gets ugly, ugly. It leaves the reader almost breathless by how ugly he is. You remember that the whole book of First Second Peter is about holiness, how Christians are to live a holy life. So that key verse of, of the first chapter, that it, for this very reason, make every effort, in light of what the gospel means to us, make every effort to be godly. But the false teachers are telling them that godliness doesn't, doesn't matter so much. And the reason, one of the reasons that it doesn't matter so much is you're, it, it's all comes out in the wash. There's not going to be any great judgment. The Lord's not coming back. You don't have to concern yourself with really having to be accountable for any of it. it just, just don't make a big deal about it. There's no Lord that's going to come return and there's no judgment in your future. Now, I want you to notice as we read this morning, this scripture, I want you to hear the words and the meaning. I'm going to do my best to explain it. And some of it's pretty complicated. Some of you will have different understandings. But I'll do my best to give you the, 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 the version, the, the understanding that I have. Much of it's, there's enough truth here in all of it that it's the, the, the real important stuff, the real clear. But I don't you know, want to hear just the meaning. What you've got to get today and ask yourself why is the mood, the tone, the ugliness of the way Peter speaks. I mean, the things that Peter says here will get you kicked off Facebook, Instagram, Twitter, everything else. It just will. This is rough stuff. And I think before we even read it and say that, we ought to be aware that you and I do need to be careful with our words in every dimension, in every sphere, in every way of communicating. That's important. I say to parents, one of the things that's important to you to do is, is don't blow up your household over every infraction, everything that's wrong, everything that somebody's not right about your spouse or your kids, and, and always screaming, always yelling, making, making a mountain out of every little thing. There's a whole thousand reasons why you shouldn't do that. One of them is sooner or later your kid's going to be out in the middle of a road. It's going to be dangerous. And when you scream, they need to know, i got to listen, because if you're screaming about everything, they're not going to listen to you. And so as we deal with each other, as we deal with people, everybody's not a Nazi, everybody's not Hitler, everybody's not a communist, everybody's not a fascist. Don't, don't go there. Don't, don't, don't. And we, we're living in a culture where that seems to be the way we ought to go. And so, though there's a time to be very careful and to speak gently, most of the time that's what we want to be. Peter's not trying to be intentionally provocative, but Peter does love these people he's writing to. He loves this congregation, the last commandment, the last, the second calling, if you will, that God gave Peter in John chapter 21. You remember he said the same thing three times, feed my sheep, feed my sheep, feed my sheep. That is, you are to shepherd this flock of God, these people that you're going to bring to the gospel. And most of the time, shepherds want to speak tenderly, they want to lead gently, but there are times when not only is that not appropriate, is it not helpful, but strong language not only be defended, it is absolutely mandatory. There are times when sheep need to hear strong words of warning. In the same way, sometimes your children need to hear some really strong words of warning. Well, I think that's what Peter is doing here. He sees the danger. He wants the, the people that he loves so much to see the truth, the ugliness that is in these false teachers. And he wants the church to see them for who they really are. And so he lays it out as plainly and as strongly as he possibly can. So stand with me. We're going to read just verses 10 through 14. I wish we had time for more, but 
We'll just do these verses this morning. He's picking up right from the discussion he's already had about the false teachers, the, the promise that God can save those who are his, but that for those who are against him, trouble ahead. Verse 10, and especially those who indulge in the lust of defiling passion and despise authority. Talking about the false teachers. He says they are bold and willful. They do not tremble as they blaspheme the glorious ones. Whereas angels, though greater in might and power, do not pronounce a blasphemous judgment against them before the Lord. Tough verse. We'll get back to it in a minute. But these, again, these false teachers, are like irrational animals, creatures of instinct, born to be caught and destroyed, blaspheming about matters of which they are ignorant. They will also be destroyed in their destruction. What an interesting phrase. They are suffering wrong as the wage for their wrongdoing. They count it a pleasure to revel in the daytime. They are blots and blemishes, reveling in their deceptions while they feast with you. They have eyes full of adultery, insatiable for sin. They entice unsteady souls. They have hearts trained in greed, accursed children. We'll stop there, but the last verses get pretty rough. Much worse than this. Now, just say a note. Father, thank you for your word this morning. It is hard. It is rough. There's a kind of ugliness to it. Speak to us today the beauty of your truth, the beauty of the gospel, the beauty of your son, Jesus Christ. So precious, so valuable, and so important that we make it clear by our lives, by our words, by our deeds, by our life as families, and by our lives as a church. So use this time to protect us, to steal us for, for standing with that which is truth, and to also be aware of how these very tendencies can find their way into our own hearts, that we can guard against them and become more and more like Jesus, in whose name we pray. Amen. You may be seated. Let me just walk you through some generalizations that he gives here about these false teachers. There's some repetition of this, but what we spoke of last week, let's start with sexual immorality. Verse 10, and especially those who indulge in the lust of defiling passion. You put this in the context of what's gone before it, where he's just talked about Sodom and Gomorrah and the sin there. You take Jude, which is a parallel passage to this where it's even more explicit. It's very clear that at least uh, the sexual immorality he's talking about here must include the sins of sodomy and all the perversions that get associated with it. Every time in the Bible that homosexuality and other things related to that um, approach to life Every time it's referenced in the scripture, it is condemned. Homosexual offenders are specifically named in the New Testament as being among those who will not inherit the kingdom of God. And I have to tell you, any Christian leader who would say nothing about the need of a, of a Christian who's dealing with homosexual temptations or is indeed acting out as a homosexual and not telling them that their need to repent of their behavior is not telling them the truth. Any Christian leader who does not who does discount the power of the Holy Spirit to break the power of canceled sin and to set the prisoner free is not telling the truth. Anyone who says, well, you're just born certain ways, you know, you're, you're born gay, you're born left-handed, you're born this, you're born that, that's all it is, case over, done. And that's the gospel and there's nothing else can be done about it. They are telling a lie. I love 1 Corinthians 6. 
Not for the first two verses I'm going to read, but the last one is marvelous. Or do you not know that the unrighteous will not inherit the kingdom of God? Do not be deceived, neither the sexually immoral, nor idolaters, nor adulterers, nor men who practice homosexuality, nor thieves, nor the greedy, nor drunkards, nor revilers, nor swindlers will inherit the kingdom of God. And then Paul looks up from his parchment and he smiles. And then he writes, as such were some of you, but you were washed, you were sanctified, you were justified in the name of the Lord Jesus Christ and by the Spirit of our God. We have a God and a Savior who delivers. We have a Savior who can set the captives free. And whatever flavors your sin and your inclinations and your weaknesses are, there's a Savior who can help you and enable you to be holy in the name of Jesus Christ. Peter talks more about this same subject down in verse 14. He talks about they have eyes full of adultery, insatiable for sin. This is primarily sexual sin that's of the regular heterosexual kind. This is sexual sin of a, of a person who's out of control. This is men who cannot look at a woman without having lascivious thoughts. Men who degrade women by making them objects in their minds to be used to satisfy their sexual desire. It is a solemn warning. Jesus gave it. Anyone who looks at a woman to lust after her has committed adultery with her already in his heart. So, so often these false teachers, then as today, when you get the whole story out, you find behind it their sexual immorality, and often it's being openly promoted. Secondly, they were insolent. They were insolent. Verse 10, the last part of that verse says, they despised authority, bold and willful. They despise God-given authority. There's much in the Bible about Authority and how God's authority stretches all the way into human life and human culture, and there's a way for God's people to respond to it. These people resented people who claimed any authority about their lives, their teaching, about what they ought to be doing, how they ought to live. They rejected any person or any office that said they had a place of authority over them. And that attitude is the exact opposite of what God calls Christians to be. In Paul's, Peter's first letter, in Peter chapter 2, he says in verse 13, Be subject for the Lord's sake to every human institution, whether it be to the emperor as supreme, or to governors as sent by him to punish those who do evil and to praise those who do, be, who do good. I'm very much aware we don't live in the Roman Empire. I'm very much aware that we live in a democratic republic where we have a right and a responsibility to engage in, in politics and in the policies and the work of our nation. But there ought to be a mark about those who are Christians, even how we do that. Christians, by their very nature, should be marked as those who are submissive to authorities, not assertive, trying to overthrow them. Despise authority. They want to overthrow the idea of leadership. That's what these false teachers are, are about. They despise the lordship of God, the lordship of Christ. They, they despise any, any headship and leadership in the, in the life of the church or in the life of their community. They even despise leadership and celestial beings who've been authorized by God to have our authority in the universe. Their spirit is really that which you find in Psalm 2. Why do the nations rage and peoples plot in vain? The kings of the earth set themselves and the rulers take counsel together against the Lord and against his anointed, saying, let us burst their bonds apart and cast away their cords. What you see here are the, the acts, but also this, the attitude, the, the arrogance of the boldness that comes through. Now, the way that, that Peter illustrates this is, is probably for our eyes and for our mind a little puzzling. And can we, 
struggle to understand it a bit. Look what he says in verse 10, bold and willful, they do not tremble as they blaspheme the glorious ones. Now again, first of all, that the heart of this, whatever, however you come out there, there's a variety of ways that people interpret this passage. It's one of those obscure places. But, but again, the, the whole point is about this willful, insolent, I will not bow to any authority. That part comes very clear. William Barclay said, you can always trust William Barclay, but he says a lot of very true things. He says, neither logic nor common sense or appeal to a sense of decency will keep these people from doing what they want to do. Simple agenda of this person is, this is what I want to do, and that's what I'm going to do, period. And Peter says that they go so far as to even be willing to blaspheme the glorious ones. Now, what in the world, who in the world are these glorious ones? We could take about an hour to walk through all the scenarios and understandings. I will tell you where I think most New Testament commentators come out today. It seems the most reasonable in my thinking and understanding of it. He's talking about angels. Verse 10, these glorious ones, he's speaking of angels. That seems right, doesn't it? Glorious ones, until I tell you the next part. The angels he's talking about are fallen angels. He's talking about demons. Does that strike you as very strange? They blaspheme demons, and there's something wrong with that? Let me remind you of what Paul said about the devil. He said the devil is the prince of the power of the air. Jesus said he's the ruler of this world. Jesus said he's the strong one. And to all these beings that God has made, there is their own glory. In 1 Corinthians 15, Paul talks about the glory of the sun, the glory of the moon, the glory of the heavenly bodies we see. There's a kind of glory that, that is theirs. In Ephesians 6, we're called, these are called principalities, powers, and rulers. They're called spiritual beings in high places. Even though they are in rebellion against God, there's a kind of glory that belongs to the angelic dimension of life, including even the fallen angels. Now, here's the point. These teachers ridicule the whole idea, I believe, of the idea of there even being celestial beings, of there actually being such a thing as demons or of angels or another world out there that's, that's not part of my time and space that could have some impact on me. They ridicule the idea that I have to give any concern to it whatsoever and I can just be dismissive of it or trite with it. I don't have to care about it. It doesn't matter what I do, how I live. It's not going to affect my life and it's not going to everything to do with me. And so they may be the kind of people who very freely will curse demons and say all kinds of things about that. There's a flippancy about it. I'm telling you, God is serious about those things. He is serious about the devil and the demons. God's faithful angels, the holy angels, who we're going to see, are serious about them. I've never made a campaign, or let's stomp out Halloween or any of that kind of stuff. But mom and dad, I certainly wouldn't let my kids dress up or be a part of a functions where you take particularly spiritual realities, devils and demons, or anything associated with the cult and dress up and pretend, ha ha, isn't this funny? There's a world out there, and the enemy that you face is not dressed up in red pajamas, a funny little pitchfork, and you ought to laugh about him, and you ought not to teach your children to laugh about him. This is deadly, serious stuff. There's others, of course, they make it light and superficial. They're insolent about it. They simply say, well, there are no such thing as devils and there are no such things as, as demons. You don't have to worry about any of that. It doesn't even exist. And then there are others who are just 
They, they say, oh, yeah, they exist, but we're Christians. We don't have to. Big joke on us. We'll, we'll tell that devil where to go. I hear people talk like that. A couple decades ago, there was a prominent church in Arizona that made headlines in the Wall Street Journal about selling T-shirts that said on the front of them, kick Satan's, you fill it out. They had prayer meetings where people dressed in combat fatigues because they were going to pray against those demons. It's, 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 a, it's silliness. They're bold, arrogant, self-willed, false teachers who underestimate the power of Satan. They underestimate the dignity of the host of the angelic majesties. They think they're stronger than demons. They blaspheme the glorious ones. And then he goes on to say why that's foolish to do, because then in verse 11, he says, whereas angels, and in verse 11, we're talking about the faithful angels. Angels, that word is only used for God's faithful servants in that realm. Servants of incredible power as well. 175,000 men were killed one day by an angel. Didn't break a sweat in the Old Testament. Whereas angels, though they are greater in might and power, they certainly are than those demons. But they don't pronounce blasphemous judgments against these, uh, these demons before the Lord. They respect too much the, the seriousness of this whole issue, and it's before the Lord. So I think to understand this, I would simply say, if, I, if I'm correct, angels in verse 11, we're talking about the good, faithful angels, and the glorious ones in verse 10 are, are the bad angels. And the flippant arrogance of these people is that they don't care about godliness. They don't care about living a certain kind of life. They think you can do anything you want to do, and it doesn't mean anything. It won't affect you really at all. The idea that, that if I move into sin, that sin can open my life up to, to more sin and to more demonic activity and let them have an opportunity to come and build strongholds in my life and enslave me, that I'm actually playing the game and I just think I can just curse a demon and say, oh, it's no effect on me. I'll, I can live any way I want and, and I can control everything. I can. It's not that way. Some of you right now struggle with things because you opened your life up to, to, the, to the enemy to get a foothold in your life because you let that filth in your life and then you nurtured it and you gave them enough ground to where they have taken ground that you now hate every second of your life. Satan is not irrelevant. Demons are not irrelevant. And we must not be ignorant of the spiritual world. Read Ephesians 6. Read about the armor of God that every Christian must put on. Do not be carefree about demons and the devil. Do not be careful carefree about the things that he would prompt us to do because they will let him do more in our hearts and lives. Some of us, we take this superficially. I tell you how we take it superficially. Even though we know the Lord's Prayer, we only pray parts of it. I remind you that Jesus taught us to pray every day, among other things, deliver us from the evil one. you recognize, Christian brother and sister in Christ, that there is an evil one out there who is trying to trip you up, to deceive you, to ensnare you, to accuse you, to every day keep your life as a follower of Christ negated to nothingness? So every day you, as a believer in Christ, need to be aware of these things, and you need to pray among some way or another, deliver us, deliver me from the evil one. Look in the mirror. Ask yourself, is there anything of a bold, brash, willful attitude like we see in these false teachers? Is there anything of that in me? Is there anything flippant in me in the way I dismiss sin and make a joke out of it or, or, or dismiss the, the, the spiritual world? Is there a thing in me that says, I'm the master of my own fate. I'm really control it all. I can defy all authorities. Are you the kind of person that you are supremely confident about everything? You just know it and you know it and no one else knows it like you know it. Are you no longer teachable? 
You go around making pronouncements about things you don't hardly know anything about, but you talk like you do. Are you open to reason and persuasion? These false teachers slander the fallen angels. They do it in the presence of God. They don't even have the humility to understand the order in which God has put in the universe. It just speaks down on even a more personal level. Like what he says, you don't say about demons because you speak in the presence of God. That means everything you speak about someone else, you're always speaking in the presence of God. So I'll just tell you, if you go home and talk about the preacher today, you just remember, I may not be there, but God's there. <laughs> Anytime you criticize anyone, you're doing it in the presence of the Lord. That matters. The desire to criticize others never springs from the grace of Jesus Christ. The desire to disgrace others never comes from grace. These guys were insolent. They were proud. They were bold. They were arrogant. And finally, they were irrational. Verse 12, but these like irrational animals, creatures of instinct, born to be caught and destroyed, blasphemy about matters of which they are ignorant. The word animals here, or beast here, a brute here, some translations, is from the Greek word from which we get the word zoo. He says these people have, instead of being living as creatures made in the image of God, which they are, but they're, they have moved themselves down to where they're living on the level of simply animals. Animals have an important place in God's creation and his purposes, but they're a completely different purpose than, than you and I made in the Lord's image. You take any old sheep, you take any old pig, and you can lay some food in front of them, put out a trail of food, and they will follow that trail. They, they, they don't look ahead. They don't think about what's at the end of this line. As long as they're eating, as long as they're being satisfied, they'll just move down to that trail all the way to destruction. That's the way these false teachers were. They have no sense of duty, no sense of responsibility. They have no sense of answerability. They're just creatures of instinct. They do what they feel like doing. And people who live like that, who just live by instinct, are the very opposite of person who is spiritual. Matthew Henry said, when the law of God is written in our hearts, our duty will become our delight. We don't live by the old instincts. We don't live by just what we feel like. Our duty becomes what we really desire. The duty that comes because I'm made in the image of God, called for eternal purposes to live for him. But these guys, they're out there, they're teaching, they're saying whatever people need to hear. Whatever get an audience, whatever hold the, the, the sweetest and kindest people, they will, they will, they will, they will bewilder you with their 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 logic. They will, they will, but they will, they're just going to talk off the top of the head till it makes sense. I can take you about a hundred hundred places on YouTube right now, and you can hear them go. It's buffoonery. It said that a little knowledge is dangerous, while a lack of spiritual knowledge is deadly. You know, 2, 1 Corinthians 2.14, the natural person, that is a person apart from Christ, has, does not accept the things of the Spirit of God, for they are folly to him. He's not able to understand them because they're spiritually discerned. You can take a Laos guy, you can teach him, send him to college and to Bible schools and seminaries. You, you can give him all the great books of theology in the world, and, and apart from the Holy Spirit coming and invading his life through a new life in Jesus Christ, he's an idiot. He can't see it. He can't know it. That only comes by the gracious work of the Holy Spirit in the heart and the mind of the believer. You go back to Corinthians where God had to give us a revelation by his word. He, he, he inspired it into men who could write it down, but he also has to come and illumine us so we can understand it. And that's the work he does by his Holy Spirit. So these false teachers are out there. They're just like, they're just making it up. 
just making up. They're just dry, instinctive animals. Their end, of course, is a catastrophe. Same thing we said last week. The truth is, when you come to faith in Jesus Christ, you get eternal life right then. And every believer has had the opportunity and has almost, I'm certainly, had some, at least a little foretaste of heaven. I hope you've had many of those experiences where you, there was such a, such a moment and Christ was so at the center of it, and so at the center of your heart and mind, you were tasting heaven. I hope that's, I hope you meet him that way every day and have that. But it's also true that people who are unredeemed, who have yet come to Christ, they are impenitent. Every day taste a little bit of hell. I don't care how much money they have, how successful they are, how much it looks like they're on the top of the world, the bitter taste of hell is in their mouth almost every day. That's what he said back in verse 9. The unrighteous are already under punishment until the day of judgment. The real judgment's coming, but there's a taste of it already there. And if you just look closely at their lives, you'll see it. Now in verse 12, he says, they will also be destroyed in their destruction. They will suffer wrong for the wages of their wrongdoing. Now, they don't see that. They're, they're naive to coming destruction. They, they've been a lot of energy saying, oh, no, that's never coming. They use a little play of words here. He says, in destroying others, they themselves will be destroyed. Or they, they harm others, and so they're going to be harmed. That's a biblical axiom, isn't it? You reap what you sow. That's the way life works. Part of the wicked thing they does that, that is going to bring that judgment is, verse 14, they entice unsteady souls. The word entice is the word for a hook, like a, a fisherman used. Peter, I know, fished with nets, but I suspect he fished with some hooks too. There's probably times he was going after certain fish, and I, I think he, he knew what it was to put a bait on there that made it to the fish look delicious. But, of course, it would mean their death. These, these folks, they often look for people who aren't well-grounded, who are not founded in the Scriptures, who are new to the faith, who have, who have gotten away, and, and, and they're not walking right with the Lord, and they, they, they come to them when they're unstable, and they entice them. They speak words they want to hear, and they trap them brings destruction he says it's going to result in their destruction it's what they deserve now if you think that's too harsh then let me remind you of the words of jesus matthew 18 6 he said but whoever causes one of these little ones to believe in me who believe in me to sin it would be better for him to have a great millstone fastened around his neck and be drowned in the depths of the sea that's the words of the Lord Jesus Christ. Peter's not out of line here at all. So there's a judgment that's already been experienced in this life, and it will, just, it will just grow much worse in the next. Again, William Barclay, to put it quite simply and bluntly, the glutton destroys his appetite in the end. The drunkard ruins his health. The sensualist destroys his own body. The self-indulgent ruins his own character and his peace of mind. The man who dedicates himself to these things is seeking for pleasure, for a while he may enjoy what he calls pleasures, but in the end, in the end, he ruins his health, wrecks his constitution, destroys his mind and character, and begins the experience of hell while he's still on earth. We're in Proverbs on Wednesday night having a great study. You ought to come plug in. Doing it with children puts a whole new twist on it, but it's for adults and children together. We hope you can join us. Proverbs makes it very clear that at the mark of a fool is he, he looks down the road but he doesn't really pay attention to where the path's leading. He's always just interested in what's right in front of him. That's all he cares about. So he's the kind of person who never asks, where's this path I'm on? Where's this going to lead me in 10 years? Some people do that in areas of life. They, they're really good about thinking about money, but they don't think about the bigger issues of their heart and their, their life and their character, and they, they never postulate out where all this is leading for them and their family. 
And the effects of it begin pouring out of these people. They, you see it in the, he begins to give bullet point after bullet point. We just give a few of them this morning. They count it pleasure to revel in the daytime. Now, sexual immorality, wickedness, greed is wrong at any time, any place, anywhere. But in normal Christian society, where there's some mark of, of either a culture that really at least wants to hold on and make itself successful, and certainly where there's a Christian culture, normally there's a lot of things that, get, that happen, but at least it's not done out in the open, boastfully, braggadociously. It's done in the darkness. People have enough sense to know there's some shame on it. 1 Thessalonians 5, 7 says, those who get drunk are drunk at night. You don't do it in broad daylight where people can see you're falling all over yourself and all that mess. And Acts, you remember on the day of Pentecost, the Holy Spirit falls. The church is amazing what's happening to all these Christians. The world doesn't know what to make of it. They say, well, they must be drunk. And Peter says, no, they're not. And then he says the obvious. For these people are not drunk as you suppose. It's only the third hour of the day. It's only 9 o'clock in the morning. Nobody gets drunk at 9 o'clock in the morning. But for these teachers, you see, even those boundaries have disappeared. They do whatever they want to do, whenever they want to do it, how they want to do it, and nobody will stop them, and they want to be proud of doing it. That offended even the pagan Romans, who, who were certainly not too much against debauchery, but they thought it ought to be not in the daytime, that, that, that real things like that should happen at least at night. But I would tell you that, what I hope you know, America has now become a culture where more and more and more we revel in the most wicked things, and we do it in broad daylight without shame. More than that, we expect it to be applauded. If you want to read an interesting book, Carl Truman, you better be a good reader and ready to wade in some deep things, but he writes in the book, The Rise and the Triumph of the Modern Self. He talks about the stages by which a culture has gone through, and he identifies them particularly in our culture and what's happened in the last 100 years. He puts it in three stages. He says, first of all, the self becomes psychologized. And when people think of themselves, they don't think of their calling or their purpose of, of what they're about. They think of how they feel, how they understand themselves, of their own sense of who they are. That determines everything. That's the final word of who I am. And so the self becomes psychologized. Has no other purposes but to, to self-actualize. Number two, psychology becomes sexualized. And so while sex is certainly for everybody an important matter, it's always been around, but, but there comes a point where people say that sex defines absolutely who you are. It becomes the core of everything you're about. And all of life, it means anything. It's got to be all about the fulfillment of that. And if, if you can't find it, it's just a denial of your whole person. And so psychology becomes sexualized. And then the third stage, he says, is that sex becomes politicized. So that if you deny anyone their sexual expression, you're questioning the validity of their personhood. It's not enough that we would just tolerate people, do what you want to do sexually. It's not our business. It's not enough even to get to that point and to say that. You have to do much more than that. You have to affirm it. You have to celebrate it. There are parents in this church, I, I Maybe grandparents in this church, friends in this church who, who face this very situation. You've had people, some of them grew up in church, and they've bought this whole lie. They've, they've got sucked into all of it. And they are, they, they come to their parents, and they come to their friends, and they say, this is now who I am. And I hope that a parent, I hope if you're a parent, if there's someone you love, I hope you'll say to them, well, I love you, and I'll never stop loving you. 
I care about you. You matter to me. You'll always be my son, my daughter, my grandchild, whatever. That's not going to change. But I can't affirm what you're doing. I can't celebrate it. You know, you know the scriptures, you, or maybe you don't, but I, I just tell you what the Bible says if you're interested. But I love you, but I can't affirm it. And they're going to come back to you, and they're going to say, uh-uh, uh-uh, no, no, no. When you deny my sexual expression, when you don't affirm it, when you don't agree with it, when you deny it, you're denying me my personhood, and you are oppressing me. And you've got to stop it. And that's where we're at right now. It's sin out in the broad daylight, the most hideous kind that generations and generations and generations have, and this generation or this, this culture will one day recognize it again too, I promise you, but it will be costly. He says they are blots and blemishes reveling in their deceptions while they feast with you. These are people that, that say, oh, I'm a Christian. I want to show up at the Lord's Supper. I want to show up at the Christian potluck. Say, you Christians, you know, we love to get together and eat. And we do, don't we? And we need to. We need to do more of it. I want us to do more of it. But there's some folks who would like to come in and, 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 and be a part and say, I'm a leader in this Christian movement and have these feasts, but their whole lives, it's not appropriate. They're blots and they're blemishes. You remember in, first Corinth, in Corinth, in 1 Corinthians chapter 11, that whole famous passage about the Lord's Supper? It all starts with Paul saying, in eating, they come together. It's coming for this, this feast of the church and for the Lord's Supper. But in eating, each one of you goes ahead with his own meal. One person's hungry, another gets drunk. So the people wealthy get there, they take advantage of all the food. They don't care about the other people, their needs. It's all just about me, me, me. He says, don't you have houses to eat and drink in? Or do you despise the church of God and you're humiliating those who have nothing? You won't even share what you've got. They are blots and blemishes. My wife hates stains. I come home with shirts and pants, stains, stains. Arr! I don't care about them, but she does. <laughs> I should care about them, shouldn't I? Blemishes on the skin, like a cancer, something festering. He says that's what they have become. They pollute, they're dirty, they're foul, they're diseased. They're reveling in their deceptions. And you know what the truth is? That's what all of us would be. Without Christ, without coming to know him as Savior, the sin that all of us were born with would simply fester and grow and putrefy. And we would go through, some of us, some people go a long way looking they cover it up real good, but it's there. It's festering. It's ruining their lives. But the gospel is the answer to that. It's the answer to missing hell, but it's more than that. It's the answer to be set free and be cleansed and become whole and become healthy. In 1 Peter 1.19, his first letter, he talks about the precious blood of Christ like that of a lamb without blemish or spot. Jesus, that lamb of God, that one who had no blemish, no spot, nothing wrong, took that perfect life to a cross. And there on that great exchange, he died not only to forgive me of my sins, but to save me from my sins, to deliver me from my sins, to make a whole new life possible now and an eternity that continues in him. So at the end of this letter, Peter says in verse 14 of chapter 3, Therefore, beloved, since you are waiting for these, be diligent to be found by him without spot or blemish and at peace. Let there be no doubt. Don't buy the lie of the false teachers. We are called to be like Christ. He is the standard. He is the measure. Not a bunch of rules, not legalism, but something much more difficult and challenging, but more and more wonderful. It is to be like Jesus. You probably know the story told a thousand times of Alexander the Great, man out to conquer the world, and yet he discovers in the middle of this one of his conquests that there's a soldier in his army that's been given the exact same name as his. 
And then he hears the most disturbing thing is the man's a coward. He has the man brought to his tent door, and he looks the man in the eye, and he says, either be like me or change your name. My friend, the Lord Jesus has a claim to you. He bought you by his own blood at the cross. And now he has saved you, not just to drift along, to, to live any old way, to do any old thing, believe any old thing, just to please yourself. He bought you to be like him. Quite honestly, you ought to either change your name or to say, that's the way I want to go. I, want to, I know I won't get there perfectly, but increasingly, maturingly, steadily, I want the marks of Christ on my life. Oh, God, give me that. Because I'm yours, bought by your blood. And your blood can make me spotless and blemish-free. He can do that for you today. We didn't sing it here this morning, but we sang, where's Matt? He's not here. Okay. Well, we're not going to sing. Stand up. Let's pray. Father, thank you for your word. Thank you for the promise of the gospel. Thank you for that grace that is greater than our sin. No grace less than that would do me any good. Wouldn't do any of us any good. It had to be greater than our sin, but it is. So we thank you for that gift, for that life we have in Christ. And we thank you that it's not just a ticket to heaven, but it's a, it's a work that's meant to make us completely new men and women. But, Father, feed us on the truth. Help us, help us to stand with the truth. Help us to stand with, with those things that are beautiful and holy and right. Help us to see that. We have a world that would try to twist all that around, would try to make us think that following Christ and living his way is ugly and to be ashamed of. It's anything but that. So help us to feed this heart. Help us to see Jesus, to spend time with you this week, that in the glory and the beauty of Christ, we can be reminded of what real beauty is, and then we'll know what real good is, and then we'll be certain to know what is true. Help us to be those people. Father, help that boy or girl or teenager or senior adult or grandparent or whoever's here who doesn't yet know you and hasn't yet met you. I pray even today they would turn in faith and trust. They would breathe out a prayer of asking you to save them and to transform them and to make them like Christ, that they would know that they can never earn it, deserve it, but they can receive that free gift. Help them to receive it today. In Jesus' name we pray.